You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. And so uh, this morning we're going to, uh, I get the privilege of interviewing Jared, just about how he experienced uh, the kindness of the Lord uh, in the months of uh, April, May, and June. And uh, we as the elders got the chance to sit with him for an extended period of time two weeks ago and here and and we just, yes, absolutely, we need, to, we need to spend a few weeks processing together about the greatness of our God and all the uh, kindness that he wants to pour out toward us. And so today we're going to do a little interview style kind of summary, and then the next four weeks uh, it's going to be a particular word that really marked uh, Jared in this sabbatical, and they're all words that are beautiful that I want in my life and I want in the life of this church. So... Uh, Pretty special, so glad you're back. He's been back at work for a month, uh, but just not preaching. Huh. As in July, we always uh, hear from guest preachers like we did last week with our good friend Rusty and Luke and others. So, and Chris. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, I want to read you a verse. First Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well... Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So one of the ways we, as the other elders, wanted to honor Jared, Megan, and the picnic kiddos was this concept of a sabbatical. So it is our policy as a church for the lead pastor every seventh year to take three months uh, for various reasons to experience what God would have them on sabbatical. So before I interview him about his sabbatical, just a minute or two about why sabbatical. Uh, and yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So I just want to share with you three reasons uh, after I share just basically what is a sabbatical. It's the same premise of the word rest or Sabbath that we're all called to cease our productivity and rest in the finished work of Jesus, you know, once a week. Same principle. But a great definition is the sabbatical is a carefully planned period of time. And there was a lot of careful planning. There was careful planning. Before, during, and after, yeah. In which the pastor is granted leave away from his normal responsibilities to spend an extended period of time in rest, renewal, and refreshment. So three reasons why we really wanted to offer this to Jared and his family and for us, as I will explain in a second. First benefit of a sabbatical that we are praying into is for Jared's own personal spiritual health. Lots of professions don't require you to be spiritually vital, filled with his spiritual vitality, but pastors and <laughs> preachers better have a personal spiritual vitality. It's, hmm. it's like the number one thing on their job description, right? To do everything they do out of a, a deep place of rest and abiding in Jesus. Um, like a uh, quote I read was, says, unlike any other vocation, this calling requires spiritual vitality. One cannot be a faithful pastor and remain busy. Pastors must devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, including periods of silence, meditation, reflection, prayer, and biblical study, especially hearing from God. So that was the first reason. First reason you're going to hear a lot of uh, how some of that happened. The second is for, is for Jared's family. 
It's for the health of the family. A pastor's strongest partner in ministry is his wife. She's not merely the mother of Jared's children or keeper of the house. She's a warrior helper. So we as the elders see the pastor and his wife as a team. We want our pastor's wives to be refreshed as well. So we want the pastor's children to know that family comes first. So Jared's house, the family's health. And then third, really, our health. Right? Uh, the third reason for sabbatical is church health. We don't want our pastors to fall into dutiful ministries or ministry where the church members become the subject of a pastor going through the motions. Uh, I've been a lead pastor. I understand the special temptations, uh, the special weariness that, that can happen. And so we were thrilled uh, to be able to, to do this, all of us, for Jared. And um, anyway, yeah, like I said, what, two weeks ago we got to hear and rejoice with what Lot Jared was processing. And so uh, this isn't just a report. This really is us to experience the presence of Jesus together. Uh, Jesus is alive in Jared. Jesus is alive in me. He's alive in y'all. And uh, th- this is beautiful, what God's doing. So anyway, just I would just encourage you today, uh, be in prayer for Jared as you hear the journey God has him on. But then also just be in prayer for yourself. Like, what's... What's one thing? Mm. What's one thing that Jesus is offering and inviting me into today? Mm-hmm. Anyway, Jared, I know, wants to start us with uh, a verse of scripture uh, out of Isaiah. Uh, so, yeah, take it away, my brother. Again, personally, now for me. Welcome back. Thank you yeah. so much. And uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, before I read this passage of scripture, I just want to say again, thank you to the elders, to the staff, and to each of you who made it possible for my family and I to go on sabbatical. It really was such a gift. Uh, three months uh, really did fly by. Um, I was surprised by that. I thought it might drag by, but it went by very quickly. And as I told you before, I think it's important to say again, when I was gone, I didn't miss this as far as me teaching on a stage. Um, I didn't miss running staff meetings. I didn't miss coaching church planners and pastors and uh, speaking at different events and, uh, you know, visioneering. But what I did miss was just each of you. Um, I really did miss getting a chance to see you, to talk with you, to even hug you. I know there's a misconception that because I'm a germaphobe, I don't like hugging. As I've told you before, I just don't like you coughing in my face, but I actually like hugging. And so uh, I, I miss that. I miss getting to pastor and, and counsel and all of those things. It really is so good uh, to be back and to see each of you. Um, the passage of scripture that I chose to sum up my sabbatical comes from Isaiah 51 verse 10. And here's what it says. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Uh, That may seem like a very bizarre passage of scripture to share to sum up a sabbatical. But the reason I chose that is because uh, when I entered into my sabbatical, my hope was that I would see God more clearly Uh, that I would hear his voice more loudly, that I would experience his presence more intimately. And so I went on spiritual retreats, uh, stayed at a monastery for a brief stint, I read my Bible daily, I prayed, I did silence, I did solitude, I did all of that stuff. And yet, 
rather than coming out of sabbatical with my face glowing like Moses. And if you're familiar with that story, right, where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he experienced God's presence, and he comes down, and his face is just glowing. They're like, you got to cover your face with a veil. But, you know, that's what my hope was. That rather than coming out with a face glowing, uh, I came out somewhat lonely. Uh, I came out lonely for the church, but even more so than that, I came out lonely for God because over sabbatical, um, this really surprised me. Rather than experiencing God's presence in these deeper, more profound ways than ever before, oftentimes what I felt was his perceived absence. And that startled me uh, because as you can imagine, right? I mean, if the church sent me on a sabbatical, they want me to probably hear from God. Uh, I'm not sure I'm really hearing from God. Uh, I might as well just quit, right? Like, I mean, that's like, like you said, that's a pastor's job, right? To hear from God, to walk closely with God. And so I had this, this uh, time where God felt honestly very distant for me and it kind of began to freak me out a little bit. Uh, but fortunately, I had the scriptures, and fortunately, I had good books that had been recommended to me. And I had guys like Chuck and the elders actually tell me before I even went on sabbatical that historically, this is what tends to happen uh, when pastors go on sabbatical. And then I also had the monks who began to teach me. And I had mentors uh, who would talk to me. And basically, they all showed me how even my heroes of the faith have all experienced something like this. I think of uh, David who in Psalm 13 cried out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther once referred to God as the God who goes missing. Uh, C.S. Lewis, upon the death of his wife, wrote the following in his journal. He said, Go to God whenever your need is desperate, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting, and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever even inhabited? That feels like a crisis of faith when you come to a place and you begin to wonder, was it ever even inhabited? Or was this just something maybe I kind of made up in my own mind or I believe because my parents believed it? Um, this is what Isaiah 51.10 is all about. It is about experiencing the silence of God. It is about what John the Cross referred to as the dark night of the soul, which is this place that all disciples at one point or another comes to, which really serves as this advanced class where God begins to teach us how to actually trust him and follow him even when we don't feel him. And as hard and lonely as this was, uh, as my mentors explained to me, and as again, as I read in the scripture, this is something God sends all of his children to, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And because he wants to build in us a faith that is deeply rooted, not in our feelings, not in our circumstances, but in his character and in his word. And so this class that I went through was not a class I would have signed up for. It's not something that I really expected. It's not even something that I wanted, but it's absolutely, I'm here to tell you today, is what I needed because what I discovered over the last three months is that it was in this place of darkness. It was in this place of loneliness where I discovered a new sense of God's presence in what I originally thought was his absence. 
And so um, that's why I chose this text to some sabbatical. Yeah, we had on the whiteboard in the room back there uh, had drawn out this in, this whole journey that often sabbaticals uh, lead people on. Then the word was disorientation, which is what you just explained. Yep. And, and, a, and a quote that my spiritual director is teaching me uh, that I'd share with Jared. He goes, oh, yeah, share that. He says, what God invites us into intimacy then explodes us into mystery. There's so much of God we can never understand, and, and sometimes we don't feel His presence, but it's to really root and deepen us, and that's what's going on in Jared right now. So, I mean, how awesome and holy and, and cool is that? So, what a journey. What a journey. Yeah. Anyway, I, I know where you're going, so let's <laughs> go. What's your first word? Yeah, so I've got four words to sum up my sabbatical, and as Chuck said, I'll tease these out over the rest of August. Uh, but the first word that I chose uh, to really just kind of sum up what God, I think, did over the last three months is the word sacred. And the reason I chose that word is because one of the most significant moments for me over sabbatical was um, a silent retreat that I went on at the Subiaco Monastery in northwest Arkansas. And I think I have an aerial view of that. Uh, There it is. Um, It's actually even way more beautiful than what you can see uh, right there from that aerial shot. But um, while I was there, my goal was just to really adopt the sacred rhythms of the monks. And so just to explain kind of what this looked like, um, I would start the day at 5.45 a.m. in prayer, um, actually at this beautiful church building. I took a picture of the inside of it. If we can go to the next shot, um, there it is. So that was actually, I took that with my camera, and it was just me in there every day by myself, me and actually a nun, which I didn't know nuns were allowed at monasteries, but I guess they are. So um, the monks, you can't, what's that? Mystery. We don't know. Mystery. That's it. So, uh, yeah, God was confusing me in many ways over sabbatical. And so, um, you can't see them, but beyond that cross is actually where the monks were. And we'd meet at 5.45 a.m. I would sit there in that little pew and, uh, we would just begin the day in prayer and in song and in liturgy. And then at 7 a.m., I would go have breakfast by myself. Um, keep in mind this is a silent retreat, so I'm not texting. I'm not calling. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm just there eating breakfast by myself. Um, after that, the monks would go and perform their monk duties, uh, whatever that was, throughout the grounds. Um, but because I was not working with them, I would just walk all over their campus. Uh, they had like, I think like a thousand acres of land and I would just go and sometimes sit and just like look at a tree or watch these chickens or, you know, watch birds. I mean, it was uh, really like the, uh, an old man's dream. And so, um, you know, and or I'd go back to my room and I would just sit there and I would read scripture and I'd pray. And sometimes I wouldn't do anything, but just try to be with God. And so that would happen all morning at 1145. A bell would ring for midday prayer. We'd go back to that church building, which you saw a picture of for prayer. I then have lunch alone. The afternoon was the same as the morning. Uh, just as they worked, I would just kind of walk the grounds or just sit there and be with Jesus. At 530, we would go back to that same church building for prayer. Uh, six, I would eat dinner alone. And then at seven, we would go back to uh, the building, church building for evening prayer. And so uh, here I am in this space with these very sacred rhythms with these monks uh, who are praying their entire day. I mean, and not just like during like our times at the church building, but while they're working, they're learning to pray even in their work. And while I'm there, I don't get a vision from God. Um, I, I don't see a burning bush, but something begins to rub off on me. And the only way I know how to explain that is to say, whenever I went on this retreat, I thought I was going to go crazy uh, because I'm an extrovert and I love to talk. 
and I didn't have a way to, to text and make calls, even, you know, to my own wife. And I thought I'd go insane. But man, it was so peaceful. And, and it was so relaxing. And it was just, I don't even know how to explain it other than when I found myself in this sacred place, following these sacred rhythms, I thought like, man, like, I want to adopt a sacred lifestyle. Like something like this, not necessarily like moving to a monastery, but I want to begin to experience what they're experiencing here in the everyday, ordinary stuff of life. I want to learn how, like these monks, and that's what it means to live a sacred life, by the way, to live aware of and connected to God. And as I left this monastery and I began to drive back home, I, I just had this burning desire, not just to see this happen in my life, but to see this happen in our church. And I just, I just had this, this drive of like, man, like, is it possible for us to become a sacred church? Like for people to come here on a Sunday morning or in our missional communities and more than they leave talking about the music or the preaching or any program or ministry, they leave and they say, you know what? Those are people who clearly are marked by the presence of God. Like those are some of the most peaceful, most joy-filled people that I've ever been around on the planet. Like, man, like that is my desire. And I know, like, maybe for some of you, as you hear me say that, you're like, Jared, like, that all sounds great, but, like, we don't live in a monastery. Like, you know, I have a real job and crazy kids, and I have, you know, I'm in the real world with real problems. And, and that is true. Uh, there is, like, it is easier to live aware of and connected to God in a monastery than it is right here. As a matter of fact, I talked to a guy named Brother Lawrence. Uh, I'm sorry, Brother Lawrence, Brother Francis, who um, he actually came up to me at, at one point, and um, I guess he didn't know I was on a silent retreat. And he, I was just sitting there, like overlooking a field, and he said, uh, hey, you know we're normal people, right? <laughs> I was like, actually, I've never met a monk. I don't really know a whole lot about you. And he said, well, um, I actually used to own a multi-million dollar landscape business. I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and in 1992, I met Jesus. He saved me, and I realized that I wasn't strong enough spiritually to live out there in the world and have a close enough relationship to God that I wanted to have, and so I moved into the monastery because I couldn't handle the temptations and all the distractions. And so like, there is an element where even monks would agree, like, yes, we have way more temptation, way more distraction out here. But what I want to say is this, is whether you live in a monastery or not, like this is the goal of the Christian life. It's what the Apostle Paul referred to as praying without ceasing. It's what the monk Brother Lawrence referred to as practicing the presence of God. It's what Jesus in John 15 calls abiding in the vine. And whatever you call it is fine. But guys, this should be goal number one for us as a church, as disciples. It's to keep God before our minds. To learn to slow down and to establish sacred rhythms in our life that help us live aware of and connected to God in the everyday, ordinary stuff. So that's what's behind the word sacred. I agree fully. Hurry is the great enemy of your soul. That pause was intentional. Just take that in. So I believe, yeah, through the Holy Spirit, we can create all of our environments and gatherings, mission community, DNA, train you one-on-one with the Lord to really encounter the presence of God. So that you can live more and more of your waking moments consciously aware that God is present all around you and by faith that he indwells you. It's the beautiful life. Yeah. Well said, Jared. Well, as you encountered the sacred God, 
Did you surrender to him? Yeah, so that's a great segue, Chuck. <laughs> that's my next word. Very good. Well done. Uh, it's the word surrender. And this one, I might, it might take me a little bit longer to explain this one than any of the others, so don't freak out if this one goes a little bit longer. I promise the next two are shorter. Um, but I chose the word surrender because um, for Chuck's birthday party this year, he had a uh, 60th birthday party, and he flew in these different pastors. I mean, Chuck's, by the way, like, just to brag on this guy for a second, like, we take people for granted whenever they're, like, in our midst, because they're just, you know, really normal people, we see that, but it's like, God has given this guy such favor that he's one of the only dudes I know who had friends, like, flying in from all over the country just to, like, celebrate his birthday for three days. It's like, I don't know how he pulled that off, <laughs> but you're a loved man, dude, so... Um, you're offering a free stay at a, at a lake house, that's pretty much how you do it. <laughs> that's true, and it was really good food, so maybe it wasn't so much about you, um, but for... His 60th birthday, before we showed up, Chuck, like only Chuck can do, gave us pre-work for his birthday party. And so he was like, I want you to bring an object that explains the state of your soul. Who says that? Like, who even asks that kind of, who makes that request? Chuck. And so I was like, I don't know how to know the state of my soul. So what did I do? I just, I, I Googled, how do you know the state of your soul? You didn't ask me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was too embarrassed. And so I Googled, how do you know the state of your soul? And, uh... <laughs> and eventually I found like this like first Baptist church in Vermont that like put together this little assessment and you fill it out. And it tells you the state of your soul. And I'm like, that works for me. And so, uh, I answer these questions and the word that came back that summed up my soul was disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Sounds really pitiful, doesn't it? And so at first I was like, that can't be true. But then I began to think like, Man, I think there is some truth to that. And here's why. When Jesus first saved me, I'm 20 years old. And my wife will tell you, she's coming to the second service. I'm not saying something that's not true. Like the word that people would use to describe Jared Pickney for about the first seven, eight years of following Jesus was passionate. Like I could not not talk about Jesus with other people. And I firmly believed in my mind that as long as I was obedient to God and I followed him exactly the way I felt like he had called me to follow him, then great things were going to happen. Um, in some ways, I had adopted a form of a prosperity-type gospel, if that makes sense. A gospel that I would preach against, but yet I begin to believe myself. If you do X, Y, and Z the way God calls, then your life will 100% turn out the way you want it to. And I would have never preached this, but I really thought in my mind that if I will be a resilient disciple, if I will follow Jesus as closely as I can, I will pretty much have a perfect marriage. And I'll pretty much have perfect kids. And then I'm going to plant a church. And because we're going to do it the right way from God's word, we'll pretty much have a perfect church with a bunch of pretty much perfect people. And we'll be like a family of missionary servants, like we've aimed at doing, right? And, and we'll go and we'll share the gospel with our neighbors and people on the east side of town. And every single one of them will receive Jesus and we'll baptize them right here. And it's going to be amazing. We'll change the world. And um, what I realized is that these expectations were pretty unrealistic. And they were expectations I wasn't even really aware of that I had them until they weren't met, which is typically the way expectations go. And it was over sabbatical. I began to be confronted with just how disappointed I was that God did not respond to me the way that I thought that he should. 
And um, which, by the way, starting in September, I'm going to go through like a three-month study with us uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes on Sunday morning. Someone's like, I've never in my life heard of a three-month study through Ecclesiastes. I'm like, well, we're doing it because that's what the entire book is about is what do you do whenever life doesn't actually do for you what you thought it would, when you end up in a place you didn't think you really wanted to be. And um, this is where I found myself. And honestly, I was disappointed with myself. I realized I was disappointed with others. And more than that, I was disappointed with God. And maybe some of you can relate with that this morning, if you can be honest. Some of you, you're you're here and you're like, okay, God, I held up my end of the bargain. I read the marriage books. I read the parenting books. I got involved in a missional community because I was told, like, that's what was important. I got involved in a DNA. I did all of this stuff. I prayed. I read my Bible daily. And yet, you now find yourself in a place you would have never chosen for yourself. And this is kind of where I was, honestly, in some areas of my life, just disappointed with things not turning out exactly the way Jerry Pickney thought that they should. And it was in this space that, that God was so good to give me John chapter 21. And I'll just read it to you. This is after Peter has been restored in his relationship with Jesus. He had denied him three times, but now he's been restored. Jesus has affirmed him. He's forgiven him. It's just this beautiful moment of reconciliation. It'd been a great place for John to end the gospel right there. Bam. This is the last chapter. And yet he records this conversation with Peter where Jesus says, Very truly, Peter, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would be glorified. And church history tells us that Peter, he would be crucified upside down. Um, And so Peter, Jesus is given a nod to that. And then Jesus said to him, follow me. And I love it if you read the rest of the story, because Peter's just so human, man. That's why I love Peter. He sees John over there, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he says, well, what about him? Like, like what, is he going to have to suffer? Like, what's his life going to, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you know, well, he'll suffer too, or whatever. He says, what is that to you, Peter? Don't you worry about him. You follow me. You be willing to go wherever I lead you. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, we know that God used Peter in phenomenal ways. Just read the book of Acts. Um, But notice how right here, before that could ever happen, Jesus had to strip Peter of his illusion of control. He says, Peter, when you were young, you got to do whatever you wanted. You were in control. You were smart. You were sharp. You had man like You had the strength to do what you wanted to do. But as you get older, you're going to get weaker. And you're going to actually lose control. And he said, you're going to be led into places you do not want to go. And according to Henry Nouwen in his commentary on this passage, he says, this is actually the definition of Christian maturity. You ready for it? Here it is. Here's the definition of Christian maturity. It's a willingness to be led where you do not want to go. I don't like that definition. But man, what a good one. It's a willingness to be led where I do not want to go. In other words, what now in a saying, what I believe Jesus is saying here, is Christian maturity is to become a man or woman who is marked not by power and not by control, but by powerlessness and humility. It's to become so deeply in love with Jesus that you are willing to go to places you would rather not go because that's where you know Jesus is leading you. 
And over sabbatical, one of the gifts that God gave me was to realize that, man, this is what he's been doing in my life. And though it feels like a death, and it will feel like a death to you, when you continue to trust him on the other side of that death is a life that is deeper and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. So that's what's behind surrender. Yeah, two things. One is thank you for sharing your heart and your disappointment. Um, Isn't it great to have a pastor who's real? Um, When you get called in the ministry and pay to do ministry, you don't get some like extra little chip that makes life easier or makes you less human and needy. So thank Thank you. you. That's great. Great. Um, and I was just going to say what you said. That's, that's my experience of, of following Jesus that, uh, it does feel like death and, and all disappointment comes from unmet expectations and we all have expectations of God and others. But the beautiful thing, what Jesus is trying to lead us into is something even more beautiful. He says, beyond your wildest dreams, uh-huh. a peace that surpasses all understandings. He said, we don't like, we love the end promises, but we don't like the path, the journey, or the means to the ends. And all he's, Jesus is simply really trying to do when he says, follow me, is like, just walk with me today, and you'll end up where you need to be. And I promise you, it'll be better than all your expectations. Your expectations, Jesus says, aren't near big enough and aren't near beautiful enough. Just trust me. Trust me. So that's, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So third word that I chose is the word softer. And the reason I chose this word is because I'm guessing I'm not alone in this, but um, I can be my own worst enemy. I can be very hard on myself. There are times where I feel like it doesn't matter what I do. It's never enough. If I'm not failing as a pastor, then I feel like I'm failing as a husband. If I'm not failing as a husband, I feel like I'm failing as a father. If I'm not failing as a father, I'm, I'm failing as a friend, right? Like I'm guessing some of you can relate with that. And um, one day I was sitting on my porch and I was reading a book that Richard Plass recommended to me. And it was by a woman named Andy Col- uh, Colbert. And she said something that captured my heart. Um, she says the healthiest and most productive thing a person can, person can do. And as a three, that got my attention because I'm all about productive. I'm like, all right, here we go. Healthiest and most productive thing a person can do is not try harder, but try softer. And that has really stuck out to me because what she goes on to say is that if you really want to be healthy, if you really want to be productive, if you really want to be fruitful in life and in ministry, rather than using shame to motivate yourself to do more or to go further or to be better, begin to extend the same compassion and gentleness to your shortcomings that God extends to you. Um, and at first, you know, in my mind, I was like, that sounds kind of like narcissism like to me. Like, that sounds really selfish. And, but then I began to read the scriptures, and I thought of Mark chapter 12, where one of the teachers of the law came to Jesus and says this, Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Here's how Jesus responded. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And then listen to this one. Love your neighbor. And love your neighbor how? As you love yourself. We don't talk about this, but do you realize Jesus actually assumes in every command in the Bible on how to love your neighbor, how to love the person next to you, Jesus assumes that you're going to do that towards yourself as well. And so whenever you read things where we're commanded to forgive others, guess what? God also wants you to forgive yourself. 
when you're commanded to be gentle and patient and encouraging to others, you're to be gentle and patient and encouraging to yourself. We don't talk about that really at all. And I feel like this is a vital and often missing component in our discipleship. It's learning how, like the Apostle Paul says in, in Corinthians 12, to receive our imperfections not with criticism, but with compassion. And one of the ways that God helped me begin to embody this over the last three months was through farming. Uh, most of you, I think, know that my wife and I, over sabbatical, started Green City Farms. You know, we had been gardening for years, and this year we were like, oh, I've got three months, like, let's just take it to the next level and try to sell some produce and you know, one of the things that God taught me is that if you don't have a soft soil, you're not going to grow anything. And that's why really the majority of work comes when, in farming in preparing the soil to receive the seed. So many of us are not receiving the seed of God's love and the gifts that he wants to give us because our hearts are so hard. We have been beat up. We have been abused. We have become cynical and we've just, it's just become this defense mechanism just to be hard on others, to be hard on ourselves. And we are missing out on so much that God wants to give us. And another thing that God began to teach me through farming was just the reality that, man, no matter what kind of vision you have, you always have this perfect vision. If you're going to have like basically the Garden of Eden in your backyard, at least that's the way I am. And it never turns out that way. And that's just the way life is actually outside of Eden. And God wants us to learn to even receive that with gentleness and kindness and not freak out over it. I was reading Wendell Berry, um, and he says this. He says, every year a farmer starts the season with a vision of perfection. Man, it's, it's, like I said, it's going to be the Garden of Eden. It's going to be awesome. But every year through the, cor- <clears throat> through the course of the season and work, that vision is relentlessly whittled down to a real result by human fragility infallibility, mortality of creatures, pests, disease, and the weather. The crop year is a long struggle, ended invariably not by desired perfection, but by the need to accept something less than perfection as the best that we could have done. And man, over sabbatical, that's what God has been teaching me. It's the reality that he is not freaking out over Jared Pickney's shortcomings. He's not freaking out over the fact that my life or this ministry or my marriage is not perfect. Sometimes I freak out over that, but he's not at all. And what I'm learning and what God has so graciously taught me, and I hope that we can begin to get this as a church and as a people, is he really is not after perfection. He's just after pursuit. Or as the song said, that he's after our hearts. And that's one of the reasons I love Peter and Jesus' relationship, because Peter constantly failed over and over and over and over and over, but he kept getting up and kept going after Jesus. And that's really all that he is after. And whenever we get that, we actually move from a place of trying to beat ourselves up to learning to abide in God's love, which Jesus says in John 15 is actually what does make us more productive. That's the thing that produces fruit. So that's what's behind softer. Amen. I'm just mindful of <clears throat> Romans that it says it's the kindness of the Lord uh-huh. that leads us to repentance. It's the it's kindness of the Lord that leads us to change. Uh, I introduced this whole time as like we're going to share some of the kindnesses of God toward Jared. And he's extending his kindness towards all of us today. And I had, and he fully processed with Jared, but while he was experiencing that kindness of the Lord, I was too uh, this summer as well. And the thought that comes to me is like, who am I to like 
treat myself differently than Jesus is treating me. So for me to receive the kindness of the Lord, I've quit shaming my shame and just surrender to his love and care and let him work in me. So mm. that's, that's, thanks for sharing that. That's, I'm glad you got to experience the softness and gentleness of Jesus. Thank you, brother. Yeah. So I'll share my last word, and this might be my favorite. I don't know if I'm supposed to have favorites, but um, it's Just the word. Be kind to yourself. You can have favorites. Okay. It's okay. All right. It's okay. Thank Is you it okay? Okay. It's Thank okay. you. Thank you, yeah. Chuck. Um, so, yeah, it's the word secure. And the reason I chose that word is because uh, those of you who know me most or know me closest know how insecure I can tend to be. And particularly around the idea of um, I just feel like that I have lived most of my life with a scarcity mindset that uh, I'm somehow just without something that I need. Everybody else has it, but I don't. I'm just missing something, and I can't get it. And um, again, I was sitting on the porch one morning with my wife, and I just had this image, and I thought, man, that sums up how I've lived my life. And it was from about four years ago, we took uh, our kids to an Easter egg hunt at AutoZone Park, and it was supposed to be like this, you know, great experience and we get there and um they have it had to be 1500 kids like just kind of like roped up like pulled back like you know these like bulls waiting to come out of a stall and all of a sudden this helicopter comes in and the helicopter was supposed to like spread like drop eggs all over the outfield and then the kids would go get the you know the eggs but instead i don't know if like the guy accidentally dropped the eggs or what happened but he dropped the eggs all in one spot in center field and it couldn't have been more than 250 eggs. I actually went back and watched the video because we did it on video. I mean, I was like, that's unbelievable. What were they thinking? Like, whoever was over that should be fired. And so, maybe not. Like, give them grace, I guess. But, um, but, uh, they dropped this little thing of eggs in the center, in center field and they removed the rope and the kids take off running. And my kids didn't even have Easter baskets, by the way. How good of parents. They were like, they're like, they had their hats, like, take your hats. And they get trampled. And Nora gets like lost in the crowd. She can't, both kids end up crying. And like neither kid gets an egg. Moses is so young. Like he's just, you know, I think he's like in the stroller. He doesn't know what's going on. But I looked at that scene and I told Megan, I said, and that's how I've been living my life. Like I truly feel that I'm among all of these people and there's this limited amount of resources in center field and everyone around me is the competition. And I've got to try to be faster than you or stronger than you or smarter than you because if not, I'm going to get trampled by life and I'm going to have nothing to show for at the end. And Jesus was so gracious in that place to show me a better story. And what he began to do is he began to place my feet on this solid ground where I began to develop these new hopes and new expectations that were rooted in the right place. And the way that he did this was by giving me Psalm 23. And Psalm 23, I know, is something that many of you have heard preached. I've preached it at funerals. That's the primary place we talk about it. But it's not a funeral passage. Like, that is an all-of-life passage. And, and, and if you don't know it, right, Psalm 23, David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they come for me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. He says that my cup overflows. And then he says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of God forever. That is the complete opposite of a scarcity mindset. And, and, and God was just so good. Every, almost every single day, I would just walk around the block by myself over sabbatical and I would quote this over and over and over. I'm being reminded of this beautiful reality that even if I'm walking through the darkest valley, my future is bright because the shepherd is with me. And uh, you know, I was reading a book actually by Tish Warren some of you know who she is. She wrote a book called Prayer in the Night. And she talks about how that she went through kind of this dark night of the soul. And, and she was on like a vacation with her husband. And they came to this souvenir shop. And she found a magnet. And on this magnet it read, everything will be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. And that's just, man, like, I thought that's Psalm 23. That is Psalm 23. It is the reminder that, yes, this world is hard. In this life, Jesus said, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. And therefore, because that's true, no matter how hard the journey gets, no matter how much we lose, we can take heart in knowing that, listen, our story ends not only with an empty tomb, but it also ends with a full house where Paul says that the sufferings of this present world won't even be worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And one of the ways that, and I'll end here, one of the ways that God helped me to embody this reality was, again, at Chuck's birthday party. And uh, I think this was maybe our last day there, and you said, hey, um, you guys go for four hours and just be with Jesus. Everyone by themselves, silence and solitude. And so I was, I don't remember where I went, but I was probably about a mile from the lake house walking back because we were heading to lunch. Big like feast was being prepared for lunch, and so it's like it's about time. So I'm walking back, and while I'm walking, I hear someone running behind me, and I turn around, and it's Adam, and he blows right by me, and I thought, that's my life. Like, I feel like I'm being just like passed up, like people are blowing by me, and I had this thought in that moment, and this is shame. You better start running. You better pick up the pace. You better get moving. But then all of a sudden, as soon as I had that thought, I thought, wait a minute. He's heading to the same house I'm heading to. He might get there a little faster. But that's where I'm going. I'm just not going to sweat so much getting there. And so I get to the house. And I thought, I'm probably going to be the last one there. And who knows what food will be left. And what's crazy, this is just such a gift from God. So I walk into the house, and Chuck had just laid out this massive spread. Papa Chuck, right? So you represent God in this metaphor. And so um, he lays out all this food, and I was the first one there. And I thought, man, in God's economy, isn't that the way it works? The first will be last, the last will be first. 
And here I am, and I'm just eating this spread. And Psalm 23 is coming to my mind where God says, that's your destiny. Love and goodness will follow you all the days of your life. And you're going to dwell in my house around a table with a feast where there will be plenty. And that's just not true of me. I mean, that's true of every single person that follows Jesus. And so I pray, man, as we move forward, as Dallas Willard says, I know it's COVID spiking again, all this stuff. Dallas Willard says the world, if you're a Christ follower, even in its present state, it's a perfectly safe world. Because there's nothing actually that God or that the world can take from us that in the end is really going to matter. We're going to have every single thing that we need in Christ. So that's something he just gave me a solid confidence in over sabbatical. Well, I'm just really grateful to Jesus how he met you. It's really interesting. We heard this uh, as elders, and he shared all that and more. He goes, yeah, and he goes... And so really nothing much profound happened in those three months. I went, I went, and I circled my note. I was drawing on a napkin. I'm like, I'd circled it all. And I went, this isn't profound, you know? And I'm like, holy cow, you met God. Yeah, so I was talking with uh, a guy in our church, a former pastor, and I guess it was back in June, and he said, you ready to come back? And I was like, man, honestly, I feel a little bit of shame because I figure people's going to want me to say something profound, and I don't know if I have anything new or profound, and he said, well, maybe this will be your Forrest Gump moment. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, um, you know, Forrest Gump in the movie, he runs for three years, and people are eventually like, he stops, and the people's like, shh, he's going to talk. <laughs> and he goes, I think I'm going to go home now. <laughs> and uh, he said, maybe you'll come to the end of three months and just be like, look at Megan and be like, I think I'm going to go back to work now. <laughs> and what's cool, man, is even if that would have happened, it's like that would have been God's way of saying like, you're my son, and I just want to give you a good gift. I didn't have anything to teach you or fix in you. Like, I just want to give you a good gift. At the end, have fun back at work, you know? So, but I'm glad he did. Yeah. I felt like even more than that. So, yeah. so yes, uh, lots of lessons. Um, again, that just highlights, and I do it. I mean, I just so resonate that, oh, it wasn't profound because, God, you didn't show me what I thought I needed in that moment. But what God's doing for all of us, He's doing this for you is that he's he's inviting you to exactly what you need. So just rest and trust in him. So I'm going to pray over Jared and our church and lead us in a time of entering Jesus's presence through communion. And so, Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. I thank you. For being so kind to Jared. And so kind to us. Father I pray. That through these four words. That they will continue to be deep invitations for Jared. To experience. Just your sacred surrendering. Soft gentle. In a way that he will be. Secure in your generosity. And not live out of a scarcity mentality. And I pray that for this church family. May we awaken to many sacred moments because you're actively inviting us and may this morning be one of those. I pray that we will trust you, Jesus, and surrender to your love right now. I pray that we would experience the softness and gentleness of Jesus 
And that we would feel safe and secure in your arms forever and ever. Amen.